This podcast is brought to you by its financial supporters on Venmo, PayPal, and Patreon. Zach, Breck, Jed, Tom, Alex, Christine, Jeff, William, Mark, Danny, Dave, Nick, Kelly, Ryan, Marta, Cam, Andy, Patty, Tim, Paul, Andrew, John, Chris, and Pat. Thank you for helping me to have these conversations and to create this content. Keep Talking exists to have conversations that might help to make a better society and a better culture. I believe that each guest has important information and stories to make public, and it's something that I want to share. The following is a conversation with Barbara Demrick. Barbara is a journalist, an essayist, and is the author of both Nothing to Envy, Ordinary Lives in North Korea, and Eat the Buddha. Life and Death in a Tibetan Town. During our conversation, Barbara talks about how she became interested in North Korea, the founding of North Korea in 1945, how its society is structured, its ability to isolate its citizens from the outside world, its famine in the 1990s, the defectors she met who became the key characters in her book, and whether its leadership are true believing communists or primarily hungry for power. She also talks about her more recent book, Eat the Buddha, which details the Chinese history and relationship with Tibet, the day-to-day lives of ordinary Tibetan citizens, what happened in 1958, Tibetan acts of self-immolation, and the influence of the Dalai Lama. As Barbara mentions during the interview, it's the role of the journalist to provide the truth, not to provide hope. And in both of these oppressed places, any enduring hope that may change the plight of the North Koreans and the Tibetans must start by having an accurate understanding of the tragedy, the history, and the lived reality of its people. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Barbara Demerick. Barbara, I've been looking forward to this so much. Thank you for the time. I know you're an incredibly busy woman and have a lot on your plate. Welcome to the show. It's good to have you on. Thanks. It's fun to be here. Thank you. So I know we're going to talk primarily about two of your books today. And I thought maybe we would start with some of the background story that led to what became a very successful, very popular book, Nothing to Envy. And my understanding in doing some research for this conversation is that the one of the um, professional moments that led to the creation of the book was your being uh, the work you were doing for the L.A. Times and being placed in Korea itself. Uh, in Seoul, I think back in 2001. Had you always been interested in North Korea? I think for people who are watching and listening to this, it might be you know, interesting to them to learn about how you even got interested in, to me, what is a fascinating and tragic place in the first place. But what what is that story for you? How did you get interested in, in the country? I was uh, always interested in divided societies and borders. Um, and I started, I started my career as a foreign correspondent in Berlin. It was, you know, a few years after uh, reunification. And so I was always, you know, very um, taken with the difference between East and West and traveling between East and West of these two societies living together. And then at that time, I was also working in Sarajevo, 
which was a divided city. This was in the war uh, years. Part of Sarajevo was occupied by the Bosnian Serbs. Part was under the control of the Bosnian government. You couldn't go in between, um, at least not easily. And, you know, one side was shooting at the other. Um, I was in Jerusalem after that, East and West Jerusalem, living right across the border. So I liked, I was, you know, kind of taken with this idea of, you know, the, the two places together. But I didn't have a lot of Korea background. I mean, to, to be perfectly honest, like most things in my life, it came about by coincidence. Um, I was um, talking to the LA Times about jobs, and I was talking to them about Vienna and Cairo. And the foreign editor said, well, how about Korea? And I was like, well, okay. Um, so I was, I was stationed in Seoul, South Korea, and my job was to you know, cover the entire Korean peninsula. But it was extremely difficult at that time for a U.S. citizen to go to North Korea. So I, I think it was the, the, yearning and the frustration that made me really obsessed. Mm. Um, you know, I always say this, but there's something about journalists. If you tell us that we can't go someplace, we're like, oh my God, I want to go. You know, if we mm. could go, it's like, well, the food is shitty. There's not that much to see. It's cold. It's not nice hotels, but like when you can't go, you're, you become like, you know, a cat with a string. So I, I became really quite obsessed with North Korea. I used to dream about going to North Korea. And that, that book kind of grew out of the obsession. Hmm. I think most Americans have a basic understanding of North Korea. And primarily, I would imagine that is through its threat, um, its nuclear threat to the West and to, to us specifically. For people that know basically nothing more than that about the country, how would you give a basic introduction to how that nation came about in the first place? You know, I know its founding, as I understand it, was in October of 1945, just after the Second World War. What's the story there? You know, in a in a relatively brief synopsis, how do you make sense of the creation of North Korea, what it really represented in the first place? Well, we, we, we the, the Americans, created North Korea at the end of World War II, um, Japanese were defeated. Korea was occupied. And um, some guys in the State Department in the basement one night said, well, we have to do something with the Soviets. So let's draw a line across the 38th parallel, just like that. Mm. And it was done, um, you know, without knowing any people who did it, knew nothing about North Korea or South Korea or Korea. And in Korea, had never been divided between North and South. There was sort of a um, kind of a divide between the East and West. There were like different regional dialects, but North and South never. So this was an artificial um, division that we created. And the lines hardened, the, the 38th parallel became a demilitarized zone with landmines. And, you know, eventually um, you know, it, it became it became North Korea. Um, Kim Il-sung, the first leader of North Korea, was, you know, basically installed by the Soviets. And, you know, eventually the North Koreans drifted away from the Soviets, but it just stayed in place. And other, you know, while other Cold War divisions have vanished, 
East and West Germany, North and South Vietnam, Korea just stays as is. And I think that's what was so fascinating to me um, when I was covering the war in Bosnia and when I was covering the Israeli-Palestinian situation. You know, I wrote about a lot about divided families, but, you know, these people were divided for more than 50 years and there were no Red Cross letters. There was no um, no email, WeChat, WhatsApp, no telephone lines. I mean, there was a brief period of family reunions, but um, yeah, just this, this am- amazing divide. And it was such a weird situation that it was something easy to become obsessed with. Mm. Given that fact, and given that there is no historic there had been no historic divide between North and South, you know, in doing some research for this conversation, you know, it, it is interesting to me, given the state of depravity that has come about in North Korea to learn about some of the time period from 1945 until now in which North Korea was arguably more prosperous than the South. And that the collapse that led to, a lot of the tragedy of the 90s is a direct result of the the Soviet collapse. What do you remember or what do you think is noteworthy about you know the the 50s, 60s, 70s version of North Korea that is not often talked about? I remember learning as I uh was curious about North Korea about the starvation in the 90s, but am I right in you know, asserting that there was a time period in the 70s and 80s where it was obvious that the standard of living was higher in the North than it is today and arguably was superior to the South at that time? Um, I'd say arguably superior. Um, but, um, you know, the, the two Koreas, when they were divided, were very much the same. Politically, they were polar opposites. Um, the um, North Korean regime, you know, imposed this totalitarian system on North Korea. But you know, South Korea was also a dictatorship at that period. Yeah. Um, you know, neither of them were three. It was you know militantly anti-communist. Um, I think North Korea may have been um, marginally better off because of the um, aid it got from the communist bloc. The North Koreans were always very adept at pitting the Chinese and the Soviets against each other to you know, maximize the aid they got. They're, 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 they were smart. Um, but I think it, even before the, the Soviet bloc fell apart, the whole thing was crumbling. It just wasn't a sustainable system. And South Korea, you know, meanwhile, was booming. It was becoming one of the, the new rising Asian tigers and was becoming increasingly democratic. And uh, they just really drifted far apart. Yeah. One of the things I think about your book that made it so unique, Nothing to Envy, is, and you talk about this right at the beginning of the book, is that, you know, while in the West we learn about the the leadership of North Korea and you know, the evil of the system that within North Korea itself, there are normal people living their lives. And this is something you start the book with is that, 
you know, these are, there are ordinary, ordinary people living there. And there are people there who are experiencing love, uh, which is not a word you would often associate with, with North Korea, um, to me in general. How did you as a journalist get access to the people? I think there are generally, I think you've said six primary characters in the, in the book that kind of take the reader through the experience of living in that system. How did you get access to these people and what, what about them made them worthy of your you know, energy and time and curiosity? I, I need to backtrack a little bit to answer that. But you know, as I said in the beginning, I was really obsessed with North Korea and um, I wasn't able to go to North Korea. So I started interviewing as many um, North Korean defectors as I could find in South Korea. And there are a lot of defectors. And, you know, I would I would just try to get people as fresh as possible. When somebody new defected and moved south, I would try to arrange an interview. And there were various, various organizations that worked with defectors. And, you know, by the time I started this, like 2001, 2002, there were enough North Koreans in South Korea that they weren't really a novelty anymore. When they, when they first came, they were kind of like rock stars, but I know North Korean defector, but you know, by, by the 2000s, there were enough that people were like, Oh God, you know, immigrants, you know, every country has its anti-immigrant thing. Mm -hmm. And the South Koreans just were not into North Koreans. They were, you know, they were like poorer and darker skinned. This is actually quite a thing in Korea. Um, you know, they were like kind of the embarrassing relatives from the other side of the border, the mad woman in the attic. So the North Koreans often felt that they weren't treated well in South Korea. And so they were really excited when somebody wanted to hear their story. And I found it oddly not so difficult, um, you know, I'd, I'd meet somebody and we'd talk and we'd talk and we'd talk and we'd talk and the interviews would go, you know, three hours and then we'd meet again and the next one would be four hours. And I, you know, so I had, um, well, I didn't have access to the country. I mean, I had unlimited access to these people, you know, they would really tell me a lot about their lives and they were really, um, happy to talk. I mean, I felt like I was their shrink, <laughs> you know, it was, and Often they had been through, all of them had been through amazing traumas. There's not a North Korean who hasn't. Mm. Um, but they didn't, you know, get to talk about it that much. They didn't talk about it that much with South Koreans. And they especially didn't talk about it with other North Koreans. They were always worried that, you know, somebody was going to report them, that some North Korean would be a spy and it would get back to their, you know, get back to North Korea, that they were on the south. So it, I just kept on doing these interviews. And then, you know, at, at some point I decided I would, you know, do sort of a recreation of life in one town. Mm. And I didn't, I didn't want to do Pyongyang, the capital, because that's, you know, kind of a very manicured, curated place. So I picked, and I didn't want to do a town on the border because I, the, the border towns were different. So I picked this city, Chunjin, which, it was a large city, but not one that most people had ever heard of. 
And I just kept interviewing and interviewing. And, you know, I ended up winnowing it down to six. But other people were were interesting, too. But I, I, you know, ended up with the six who I found most compelling. And it, you know, also the people who I liked and who liked me because it took a lot of time. You know, you really had to do spend a lot of time with these people. And under the ethical rules as a journalist, we weren't allowed to pay them for interviews. There was a... Um, there was a standard fee among the the a lot of the foreign press, the Japanese and Koreans, that you would pay them. It wasn't a lot. It was like $100, but we weren't allowed to do that. But you could take them to a nice lunch. Mm. So my, my office was in a hotel that had a really nice buffet lunch. And, you know, we would just sit. We'd get a private room, and we'd just sit at the buffet lunch, you know, for four hours. Um. So, yeah, I, I picked the people whose stories I liked best, the people who I thought were the most credible. I take pretty detailed notes from um, the interviews at that time I didn't tape. Um, and, you know, I would I would listen for consistency, um, you know, to make sure people were telling consistent stories and I believe them. And, you know, the, the idea, you know, behind having people from the same community is that you know it's like a court of law you have witnesses who are you know vouching for what the others said and you know i wasn't the first one to write about the famine in north korea there was a lot of coverage but it was kind of like one shot coverage but when you'd get it wasn't that you wouldn't believe it but it was like hard to understand and accept how bad it was but if you had like Six people telling you that they saw, you know, dead children, you know, by the tracks of the train station in 94, 95, you know, it was enough, enough witnesses that you really felt like you were living it and that you were seeing it for yourself. So, you know, I, I got people who um, sort of confirmed each other's stories, people who knew each other slightly. And then, you know, when you know, it's a love story. The book is really a love story, but uh, both of my books, recent books are love stories. But the, um, when this woman who's, she's, I guess the heroine of the book, who was a kindergarten teacher, you know, I, I was interviewing her about her pupils who died of starvation and hunger. And it was all very bleak. And I asked her a question that actually became a standard question when I was interviewing refugees. I said, "What what's your happiest memory? Yeah. And she, she talked about her relationship with her first love. And that story of these, the, the girl and her first love really became the core of the book. Yeah. Yeah. The title of the book, right? Nothing to Envy, as I understand it and I've heard you say in prior interviews comes from what sounds like a children's song um, that is taught to North Korean children about the utopia that they live in and that there is nothing to envy in the world for any of the people that live in, in North Korea. You know, you, you just use the word trauma and gave an example of a kindergarten teacher who told you about, you know, seeing dead children 
who had died of starvation in the in my lifetime you know uh, in the early to mid 90s what are the primary traumas that you remember outside of the starvation and maybe even including some of the details of starvation that still resonate with you that um are kind of tough to forget that um are important for people who probably will never visit that country to remember happened there well there there were a lot of um there's a lot of political retaliation um in north korea everybody is ranked by their loyalty to the regime and in the case of the school teacher her father was uh, from south korea he had um, actually been brought to um he'd been captured as a soldier during the Korean War and remained in North Korea. And as a result of his background and the fact that she had relatives in South Korea, um, they were considered, you know, part of the most hostile class yeah. of North Koreans. And so it it she and her sisters had a hard time getting into college. Um, their prospects in life were very limited. And North Korea has a, a form of collective punishment. If somebody in the family does something politically wrong, everybody's is punished. And in fact, after she defected, she had two uh, older sisters who didn't defect. And um, they were taken away to the gulag and never seen again. Um, so, you know, the fear, you'll, you'll open your mouth and... Um, say something wrong and you'll be taken away or family will be taken away. The, the state could take away your home or your children at any moment. Um, the fear of trafficking, most of the women who left North Korea um, were trafficked in some ways or they, they sold themselves often as brides to Chinese farmers. Um, China has, you know, this, this well-known shortage of marriageable young women, yeah. and so North North Koreans who were starving and penniless and had nothing to sell would would cross the border and be put in arranged marriages with Chinese farmers, and sometimes those were very abusive arrangements. And they had no, you know, they were illegal, so they had no power at all. If they were, if they were beaten or abused, um, all they could try to do is run away. But they would lose their children. Um, it, you know, there was everything. There was cold. There was the lack of um, medical care. It was a very rough place to live. Yeah, your book is filled with some incredible quotes, and I want to read. Just a few that um, I think kind of dovetail into what we're what we've just talked about, and the first one is a simple one, which I think gives some you know pretty um, interesting context to what it's like to live there and how people who live in that country could believe, which is a topic I wanted to talk to you about as well. Could believe the things that they profess to believe, and the quote is simply. The strength of the regime came from its ability to isolate its own citizens completely. Um, I want to read one or two more. Um, 
and this is about North Korean defectors specifically, and this is this is again coming from from your book, Nothing to Envy. North Korean defectors often find it hard to settle down. It is not easy for somebody who's escaped a totalitarian country to live in the free world. Defectors have have to rediscover who they are in a world that offers endless possibilities. Choosing where to live, what to do, even which clothes to put on in the morning is tough enough for those of us accustomed to making choices. It can be utterly utterly paralyzing for people who have had decisions made for them by the state for their entire lives. And the last one I'll read is is this. North Korea invites parody. We laugh at the excesses of the propaganda and the gu- and the gullibility of the people. But consider that their indoctrination began in infancy during the 14-hour days spent in factory daycare centers. That for the subsequent 50 years every song, film, newspaper article and billboard was de- designed to deify Kim Il-sung that the country was hermetically sealed to keep out anything that might cast doubt on Kim Il-sung's divinity. Who could possibly resist? I think this is uh, you know, related to you know one of the subjects that I know I wanted to talk to you about, which is the beliefs of the people who live in that country. And I have heard you speak about this in prior interviews as well, that you know, from your vantage point, it, it seemed like some of the people that you you know, would meet who were either defectors from North Korea or were familiar with North Korea in general, they would, uh, or, or North Korean citizens themselves currently, they would uh, regurgitate some propaganda to you, but you got the sense that they didn't believe what they were saying, um, that this was more performative than it was conviction. In your experience working with these people, and and maybe this is just a philosophical question about what it's like to live, you, know, you, you just mentioned this in this quote, in a hermetically sealed country, which is difficult to conceive of in our world now. Do you get the sense that most of the people in that country, when you were doing the research for the book and now, really believe this stuff that their leader is divine and they they're living in a worker's paradise. How do you come down on that question given all of the experience that you had interacting with people who live there? I, I think people don't believe to the same extent that they did during um, the eighties and the nineties when Kim Il-sung was alive. You know, for one thing, they thought that Kim Il-sung was God. Yeah. And so when he died in '94, that was like oh, number one. <laughs> yeah, and then, and then, I guess I guess he's not immortal after all. And then his son um, Kim Jong Il died. I think fewer people believe than they did in the past. However, you know, people people will sometimes believe what it's convenient for them to believe, and you know, I I have seen this in I've seen this in China. I saw this. Actually, the first time in Iraq, I, I was covering Saddam Hussein's Iraq, and you know, somebody said to me, "You know, it's not that people are afraid to speak; they're afraid to think." Mm. And this this is a phenomenon. You just you don't want your mind to go there. Yeah. It's not that these people can't think or that they're stupid, but it's just better just better to go along with it. Don't question. And so, if you ask them, 
if they believe, you know, they'll tell you they believe, you know, they'll tell their friends and their spouses they believe. They'll tell themselves they believe, but sometimes they don't really. Yeah. We have talked about already in brief the the famine of the 90s and I'd love to give you an opportunity to add some color to that as to what caused it, how extensive it was, what the numbers seemed to be like. What do you remember about the the details that really matter about that that famine and how many people died, what caused it? People in famine don't always starve to death. Yeah. They they often die of preventable illnesses and they often die of um gastrointestinal um diseases that are caused by um like you know eating sort of sawdust corn husks people would um you know would take the um a whole ear of corn husks them and all and they would put it through the grinder mm. and eat it and for older people and children that would block their intestines um there's an anecdote in the book that that I think really a lot of people have talked about. Um, rice was a real luxury in yeah. North Korea. Um, and rice is the staple food, and you know to eat means to eat rice, same as in Chinese chiffon. Eat rice. That's 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 how you say it, to eat. Um, same in North Korea, and. So this this doctor who was quite loyal to the regime um, defected to China. Actually, she didn't defect. She crossed the border in hopes of finding relatives who could give her some money because although she was a doctor and quite prominent, she was she was starving. And, you know, like other defectors, she she walked, waited, swam across the river and she got to a farmhouse on the on the Chinese side and she went into a courtyard and she saw somebody who was putting out bowls of rice and she couldn't figure out why this rice was going out and then she realized that it was food for the dogs and that dogs in China ate better than doctors in North Korea and you know she said at that moment she had been out of North Korea for less than an hour at that moment, she realized that everything she had ever been taught, the, the we have nothing to envy, was a lie. Um, so people people are just, they're always hungry. They're always malnourished. Um, even the people who are not dying of starvation, they, they don't have protein in their diet. They don't have iodine. And, you know, the whole, the whole country is stunted. Um, North Korean 18-year-olds are something like um, two inches shorter than their South Korean counterparts. Yeah, you know, it's, a, it's a big, it's a big height difference. These are the same people, and it's all because of the diet. Yeah, I know this is kind of a pet interest of mine, but one of my favorite historians who writes a lot about Soviet communism and communism in general is a. Um, a man named Stephen Kotkin, who I think actually lives on the Upper West Side as well. You're probably neighbors. I don't yeah. know if you have met have met. Either. I've never met him. He also teaches at Princeton, I believe. No? That's right. Yes. Yeah. And you know, I've watched a bunch of his 
lectures and interviews, and I know he has studied extensively the you know Soviet uh, private documents that have been de- declassified. And one of his big takeaways from reading their private correspondence was that, and this this is basically me giving a synopsis of of his research, which is that it turns out that the communists were communists, that they spoke privately the way they spoke publicly, and that their conviction about bringing about a workers' paradise and a you know national and international Soviet revolution and being committed to that in the name of social justice seems to be the way that they talked and believed privately and in public. And I wanted to speak to you as well about your take on the leadership in North Korea. And if you have a similar conclusion or not about, you know, the men who control that country and brought about, you know, there obviously were famines in the Soviet system as well that killed millions of people, uh, resulted in the deaths of millions of people. And I think Stephen's general opinion is that that was done as a sacrifice in the name of the greater goal of collectivizing the farms and um, committing, truly committing to the ideas of Karl Marx and and a, a communist system. In your research of the book, how do you come away explaining, you know, the kind of man-made famine that leads to the deaths of of children in North Korea is is it something that you think is is really rooted in whether it's misplaced or not a belief in the leadership that they're doing a short-term quote-unquote sacrifice in the name of a larger objective or are these inherently evil people that don't care uh and that it's really a power grab for them or something else how do you make sense of that I think certainly in the early years there were true believers, but by by the time the famine of the nineties came about, I think it had much more to do with um, expedience, and they felt if they opened up the country to foreign aid, they'd get in foreign aid workers and they would lose their grip on power. And I'm sure they found ways to justify it. I mean, nobody thinks they're evil. You know, maybe serial killers do, but, you know, I'm sure these people found some way to justify their their behavior. I mean, the case in China as well had great famines in the 50s during the Great Leap Forward. And people did unimaginably evil things, but people, everybody justifies their own behavior. Yeah. You know, if you interview war criminals, terrorists, you know, anybody, they, they, they have a whole rationalization that that they they teach themselves to believe. And this comes to what we were discussing earlier, whether people believe in the system. People, I think, often believe what's convenient for them to believe. Yeah, I think that's true. I know the book is about 10 years old. And in the speeches and interviews that I've, I've watched in preparation for this conversation, I, that you know 
are from roughly that time period. You know, in about 2011, I I remember you often would make this remark in these public appearances that it was still the internet really had been successfully removed from North Korea to the point where it was still largely a hermetically sealed country. If you have a general sense of the place now, and this is you know dovetailing into a question I would have for you about hope for the people of North Korea, um, what's your sense of the place in 2022 when we're having this conversation? Has has the internet broken through to some serious degree where people are better informed? There's a more of a risk that the people in charge are are at risk for being overturned how, how do you think about that currently um no it, it hasn't opened up in fact i think it's gotten more closed things things opened up a bit after the death of kim jong-il in 2011 when kim jong-un the current leader his young son now i guess approaching 40, but he was like in his late 20s, early 30s at the time. Yeah. I think things became a little bit more open initially, um, but they, have I think, have become more closed since then, and especially because of the pandemic. North Korea completely sealed its borders um, in early 2020 because of the coronavirus and there were health reasons, but I think there were also political reasons. I've, I've seen this in China as well, but a lot of um, regimes have used COVID as an excuse to tighten controls, keep people from moving, keep keep track of who sees whom. It's you know, it, it's it's contact tracing, but it's also for for um, health reasons, but it's also contact tracing for political reasons and right now the border is really sealed between north korea and china and so i think it's probably more closed than than it was five six years ago yeah and you know for a while there was this um, weird system where where north koreans could get chinese mobile telephones and they could go right right up to the chinese border and they could call south korea it was like a whole thing because there's now mobile telephones in north korea but they're only internal you can't call you can't make a phone call outside the country so as if people would smuggle in these chinese phones um and you'd like if you were a north korean and you wanted to talk to your relative in the south you know, you sort of arrange things through a broker and then you'd go to like a mountain near the Chinese border and make a phone call there. That I think has stopped. And, you know, there was a time that the people in my book had um, quite a bit of contact with um, with their relatives back in North Korea, but now they don't. There are a, a couple other quotes I would love to read out to you. Um, again, this is this is from from the book. And I think this quote specifically is related to a point that you were making earlier in the conversation. And this is it. If North Koreans paused to contemplate the obvious inconsistencies and lies in what they were told, they would find themselves in a dangerous place. They didn't have a choice. 
They couldn't flee their country, depose their leadership, speak out, or protest. In order to fit in, the average citizen had to discipline himself not to think too much. And there are a couple others. That's exactly what we were saying. Yeah. It is axiomatic that one death is a tragedy, a thousand is a statistic. So it was for Miran, one of the characters in the book. What she didn't realize is that her indifference was an acquired survival skill. In order to get through the 1990s alive, one had to, to, one had to suppress any impulse to share food. To avoid going insane, one had to learn to stop caring. And then the last one is about the, the lies and the effect of lies that are almost seemingly inherent in systems like the one that's in place in North Korea and the inability for that system to often perhaps get the truth to the leadership of the country. And the quote is this, supervisors routinely fabricated statistics on agricultural production and industrial output because they were so fearful of telling their own bosses the truth. Lies were built upon lies all the way to the top. So it is, in fact, conceivable that Kim Il-sung himself didn't know when the economy crashed. You know, this this podcast in general, I, you know, covers a lot of different subjects and talks about many different forms of ideas. But one of the recurring themes that I seem to hit on in this show are the different systems that are operating in the world, whether that's a you know, often a political system and the incentives that are inherent in political systems that I think are related to the comment you just made about people are survival animals and they'll often respond to their immediate incentives, whether those incentives are are good and or bad. You know, we have plenty of problems in our own country that I think we should be honest about and address. But in general, you know, I, I know I have heard you say this in interviews before that, you know, the the amount of appreciation that you have for, you know, the system, we both live in the U.S., the, the, the good fortune we have to be luckily have been born in a place that isn't wholly corrupt and destitute. And you're a journalist, so I know, you know, you're a truth seeker. And you can't be a truth seeker about the country that we both live in and not see a lot of problems here. But in general, I'd love to give you an opportunity to speak about, you know, your perspective, given the knowledge you have about North Korea. And I know we're going to talk about China as well and Tibet. But to provide a Western audience some context and some perspective on what might be useful to keep in mind about the prosperity and the freedoms that we really do have here that you know that we've inherited something that um is worth maintaining i don't want to put words in your mouth but in general i'd love to just give you an opportunity to speak about the system we live in and contrast it to the incentives that you found that led to the lies, the starvation, the abuse of power, the real abuse of power in a place like North Korea. You can take that comment in any way that you'd like, but um, 
I'd love to get your you know thoughts and feedback on that. There's a um, a, a quote that you'll see in you know in various forms of political science literature, and something that they used to always say about North Korea is that the bigger the lie, the greater the show of power. Yeah. So you know it doesn't matter how ridiculous it is, ridiculous it is if you can push the big lie, make it as big as possible you show your power. And it's, it's sort of hard not to think about that when it comes to January 6th. Sure. But that belo- you know, belongs to a whole different thing is you just keep on repeating the lie and you make it bigger and bigger and bigger. And it, as it gets bigger, it becomes stronger. That, that's kind of the way it was in North Korea. Yeah. And before we transition to eat the Buddha, I would, I would love to give you, you know, an an opportunity to, to talk about any trends, you know, North Korea is undoubtedly totalitarian and, um, limits virtually any freedom that its own citizens might, uh, want to enact. I think freedoms that we generally take for granted here in America. Are there any latent totalitarian tendencies you are seeing in our country, we're obviously a long way away from being in a system like North Korea. But, you know, if history teaches us anything, it's that circumstances change, systems change. They can often be subtle and you know, pernicious over time that lead to totalitarianism or depravity, despotism. Is there anything you are seeing currently in America? You just talked about the the big lie of January 6th, but outside of that, and if you want to talk more about that, you're welcome to, but are there other things you are seeing in the U.S. or in the West in general that you think are really you know, potentially serious risks for um, removing the, the, the freedoms and the beauty that... <clears throat> can allow for people in general to live comfortable lives, free lives in countries like ours? Well, you know, as I said, I'm a journalist, so um, I'm a big believer in truth. Yeah. You know, same, you know, having people working off of the same set of facts and, you know, any, any time that, um, the media becomes polarized and the truth is in doubt, you know, you lose, you lose that North star of truth that keeps us, you know, kind of, kind of, um, as a functioning system and functioning, um, democracy. Um, truth is very important, even if it's an inconvenient truth, it's, it's a truth. But I think in general, talking about North Korea, when I, wrote that book in 2010 and in the years that I was reporting it in beforehand, there was an assumption that North Korea's, um, you know, was the, the last of this system and that every world trend, you know, was, would lead to the collapse of North Korea. Um, you know, there were books, the coming collapse of North Korea. There was a tour agency that used to say, see it well at last. Um, and it was like, you know, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, the fall of the Berlin Wall, it was just an inevitability. And, you know, even within 
North Korea and within China, people would say, well, you know, North Korea is going to become more like China. China was very similar to North Korea and it evolved. But what's happened is that China has become more like North Korea. Yeah. And a lot of countries have become more like North Korea, Myanmar, the Philippines. And North Korea is no longer, um, you know, such a, a weirdo. It's not an outlier as much as it was um, a decade ago when that book came out. Um, and I mean, that, that would transition, transition us into China, but it's especially true of China. Yeah. And I, I want to do that quickly. Do you have hope for the North Korean people? You know, I mean, if there are even remote possibilities for transforming that country to allow a modicum of increase in prosperity and well-being in that country, where do you where do you see those glimmers of hope, if any? I, I don't really see them. Yeah. Yeah. Let's move on to eat the Buddha and. I wanted to start that conversation in a similar way to the one we started about nothing to envy. What's the genesis for yourself? What was the interest there in pursuing and dedicating so much time and energy to the story of Tibet and the relationship between China and the Tibetans uh, for yourself? The, the Tibet book is actually very similar to North Korea in its genesis. Um, I moved to Beijing in 2007 um, as um, China correspondent for the LA Times. And the place that we really couldn't go in China was Tibet. Mm -hmm. So there was like the mystery and the frustration. And I saw um, Tibet, you know, very similar to North Korea, like it's just a series of cliches and myths and mystery. And, you know, at the time I started working on North Korea, it was like the North Koreans were these, they were these, you know, stereotyped, quote, inscrutable Asians, you know, very racist stuff would come out about the North Koreans marching in step to the leadership, blah, 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 blah. I mean, the Tibetans were, you know, also seen in a very stereotyped fashion um, as these, you know, rugged nomads and um, spiritual meditating men on the mountains. And um, it, it was more positive, obviously, than the North Koreans, but it was like nobody really had a sense of the Tibetans. And th there had been almost nothing written in recent years about what it was like to be a Tibetan in the 21st century, you know, living sort of, you know, at the edge of modern Chinese society, you know, trying to figure out, should they join it? Should they rebel? Um, like, who were they? Like, what did they, you know, what was their day-to-day -day life like? And almost everything written about Tibet was done by Tibetans, was done by people in exile um, who had followed the Dalai Lama into India, because as a Tibetan, you couldn't really write honestly about your life mm. uh, without getting in trouble. And the books written by foreigners were, were kind of thin because, um, 
you know, foreigners couldn't travel freely in Tibet. And it was always about like my spiritual journey and blah, 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 blah. It was like about the foreigner and not about Tibet. So, you know, I, I, I like wanted to be the, a fly on the wall. I wanted to see what life was like in Tibet. It, it, and, and, you know, I love um, novels set in faraway places, you know, where you can really feel like you're there. You have that feeling of walking the street. And so I wanted to do that for Tibet. And I picked, I picked a town that I think was like the hardest place in all of Tibet to get to. Um, this town, I'm just going to use the Chinese pronunciation because it's easier. It's Aba, but the, the Tibetans say Nola or Naba. Mm. Depends on the dialogue. But this town, um, Aba, had been really the center of the resistance to Chinese rule. It was the place where they had all these self-immolations. And it was really hard to go there. It's not, it's not a, a lot of Tibet, you need a special travel permit to go to, like to go to Lhasa or central Tibet, you need a permit. But a lot of people go to Lhasa, not, not journalists, but if you're a, a regular tourist and you have money, you know, you can go to Lhasa most of the time. But this, this town you couldn't go to. So it was like, what did they not want us to see? Yeah. So, you know, I, again, I became kind of obsessed with this place that was really hard to get to. And, you know, journalists love a challenge. Yeah. The the history, I mean, just for me in doing research for this conversation about so much of you know the, the history of the 20th century as it relates to Tibet, I had I had just simply forgotten about or didn't know. Um and I, I'd love to you know give you an opportunity to kind of set the table for what the important pieces of history really are for modern Tibet, you know my understanding is that it is technically an autonomous region within china i didn't have any understanding really of i think the year was 1958 of um and, and maybe i'll i'll just i'll read this quote that gives some perspective on what that year was like for people in in tibet which i believe is also roughly the same time that the Dalai Lama fled the Tibetan region. And the quote is this, Tibetans of this generation refer to this period simply as, and I'm sure I will butcher this, Nagab, big, Nagab, Nagab again. 58, 58. 58. 58, yeah. Like 9-11, it is shorthand for a catastrophe so overwhelming that words cannot express it. Only the number. But there are some evocative figures of speech. Some will call it Dulak, a word that roughly translates as the collapse of time, or hauntingly, when the sky and the earth changed places. If you can, I'd love to get your thoughts and your knowledge about, in general, what happened in that year. Why is that 1958? Why is it so important in the history of up to bed in general? Well, 58 was the year that the Chinese Communist Party really took over Tibet. Um, they invaded earlier, you know, right after modern China was founded in 1949, and they invaded the following year. But they, they left Tibet more or less intact. There was an agreement that 
they wouldn't start mass collectivization um, or you know any of the um, major changes to society for um, for a period of some years. Um, but in '58, it started in these sort of borderland regions, including my town, Aba, and other towns. And um, the Chinese Communist Party just, you know, upended everything in society. And in a way, it was worse than what the collectivization that happened, you know, for the other Chinese or the collectivization in North Korea, because the Chinese didn't understand the Tibetan lifestyle. Yeah, um, Tibet is like a really strange place, just, you know, topographically, you're, you're at, you know, over 10,000 feet, there's only certain crops you can grow, basically only barley. Um, you raise animals, you know, the, the air is different, everything is different. It's like, it's another world to that. And the the Chinese Communist Party came in, they, they didn't speak Tibetan, they didn't know how to grow things. And they just afflicted this mass starvation on on the population. And at the same time, they um, they closed the monasteries. They um, clamped down on Tibetan Buddhism, and you know everything. Just every pillar of society collapsed. Um, when you um, you know when you cut off religion. For some people, it may be a big deal, but for the Tibetans, it wasn't just religion. It was everything. The the Tibetan life revolves around the monasteries, and it's the monasteries are the schools, the libraries, the museums, they're like the gyms. You go, you exercise by doing a circumambulation around the monasteries. Um, so, I mean, society completely collapsed. And this started around 58 in most of Tibet. And really what happened is that refugees from this part of Tibet, the eastern part of the Tibetan plateau, fled into Lhasa, where the Dalai Lama um, was living. And in 59, he fled. And that was sort of the end of um, of this Tibetan era. Um, but a lot of the story about Tibet is written by people who were like living in Lhasa and were, you know, the nobles. But, you know, I really wanted to write about regular Tibetan people, as I said, just what it was like to be a Tibetan. And in the same way as the North Korea book, like I really didn't write that much about Kim Il-sung, Kim Jong-il, the Kim family, the politics. I didn't write about nuclear weapons. In this book, I don't really write that much about the Dalai Lama. I mean, he's there always. You know, he hangs his photo is there, like the photo of Kim Il-sung. And I'm not, you know, say, I, I don't mean this to be derogatory about the Dalai Lama, but it's not about him. And a lot of what's written about Tibet now is about the struggles between the Dalai Lama and the Chinese Communist Party, but it was just about what it was like to be a Tibetan. and you know, so, you know, similarly, I looked for people and, you know, one of the main people is this, this woman who's, who's a little girl in 58, whose father is sort of the local king of this part of Tibet. And, you know, she's just a kid, but she ends up in 58, the PLA comes in and storms the palace and she's, she and her family are kicked out and, 
you know, the story follows her life and the life of other people starting the book really opens in 58. There are a couple other quotes I want to read from the from this book specifically that I think will give some more context to the history and the story that you ended up writing. And again, this is from Eat the Buddha. It is impossible to fathom current Tibetan attitudes towards the Chinese government without grasping the enormity of what befell them in the 1950s and early 1960s. Tibetans often speak about when the Chinese invaded only to be chastised by Chinese who point out that this eastern part of the plateau had been part of the Qing dynasty's China since the early 18th century. But the Qing emperors were Manchus, a northern people who were nominally Tibetan Buddhists. The Han Chinese were virtually strangers. And what difference does it make? When somebody who speaks a different language comes to your town, confiscates your home, your clothing, your shoes, and your food, destroys that which is most sacred to you, imprisons the young men in your family, and shoots and shoot those who resist. It feels like an invasion whether that person is a fellow citizen or not. Tibetans aren't talking about the fine points of international law or the definition of sovereignty. They are speaking honestly about what they experience. <clears throat> then this is another one I wanted to read. Seeing the monks, seeing the monks humiliated, statues smashed, and paintings burned, shook Tibetans to their core. Buddhism provided the rituals through which the seasons were measured, births celebrated, and deaths grieved. The monasteries were Tibetans' museums, libraries, and schools. Whether or not you were a true believer in the faith, there was no denying that Tibetan Buddhism had inspired an artistry that some compared to the splendors of medieval Christendom. The attacks on religion alienated Tibetans who might otherwise have supported the Communist Party's efforts to stamp out feudalism and create social equality. You know, as I was doing research about this book specifically and listening to interviews you've given already about, you know, your research for the book, yeah, you know, I kept coming back to, um, you know, facts of history that you have talked about, which is the self-immolation um, that has occurred in, in Tibet. And, you know, I think for me, the first, you know, even possibility of that reality that I remember was from the Vietnam war of, of learning uh, of that act, you know, taken as a, a form of defiance and a point that you have made, you know, multiple time in other conversations is that the Tibetans who, have have done this have burned themselves alive tend to be from a certain part of tibet and take pride in the fact that this is an act of self-destruction it is not an act of terrorism in the sense that no other innocent people are are also killed in the act and that you know i know i've heard you say this too that your worry a worry you have about you know the impending death eventually of the dalai lama is that that will lead to i think in your judgment potentially more of those kind of acts and potentially more acts of violence because the dalai lama has preached such a message of peace and nonviolence. 
to focus in on that um, tendency for self-immolation, which you know is just ama- you know amazing and uh, extremely difficult to watch. But I have seen um, seen that myself. I know you have too. What is your big takeaway from what those acts tend to be about? Um, what would what would inspire someone in your research to be so motivated? Um, what message are they attempting to convey in protesting in such a manner? I mean, I think it's a way of making a very strong statement. Um, you know, of showing the depth of their um, love for the Dalai Lama and their resistance to the Chinese Communist Party. Um, you know, Chinese propagandists are very, very keen on showing that Tibetans are happy. Um, there's, if you read some of the literature put out by the Chinese government or even some of their fake Twitter accounts, they're always like, oh, these are the happiest people in uh, in China. Lhasa is always like, Listed, oh, the happiest city. Look, they're singing and dancing, and you know they they we were we liberated them from serfdom. You know when the Communist Party came in, and it, it's it's a way of um, showing. Well, we're not happy. It's a way of making the Chinese lose face, and you know there's no really more powerful way to show your unhappiness than to to kill yourself in kind of a spectacular fashion. Yeah. You said this earlier in this conversation that one of your primary interests in writing the book was to learn about, you know, what it's like to be an ordinary Tibetan. And, you know, this is a very simple question, but in general, what were your primary findings? You know, what what is it like to be, you know, a quote unquote normal person living in Tibet? What is that experience? What's the oppression like? What's the day to day lived experience look like? You know, th- this is kind of a cliche, but it, it's something that I've taken away from my reporting all over the world is that people are kind of the same everywhere. And um, so goes for the Tibetans. I mean, it's a very special culture, very religious culture, or say spiritual culture, but they want to, you know, they want to live in a nice home. They want to educate their children. They want to take care of their elderly parents. Um, you know, they may not want um, wealth or power so much as just to have a decent life. You know, they care about their families. And it's really hard to be a Tibetan. Um, there's no sort of like, even more so than with North Korea, there's no like kind of normal path you can follow where, you know, you can be employed and get your children educated and take care of your elderly parents, you know, take care of your, um, your spouse, um, for there are almost no jobs for Tibetans outside of government jobs. So a lot of Tibetans, young Tibetans will go into the civil service and this is a communist country still. So there's a lot more civil service than there is in the U S but they'll become teachers, policemen, Bus drivers work in, you know, state state owned enterprises. And if you are a civil servant in Tibet, 
you're not allowed to practice your quote-unquote religion. And I'm saying religion in quotes because, you know, as I said, this means basically eschewing everything in your culture. You know, it means, you know, you can't have a picture of the Dalai Lama. You can't um, go to the monastery. You can't, you know, circumambulate the monastery. Uh, you know, you can't, you know, go go prostrate yourself in the closet. You can't, all these things you can't do. Um, and so it's a very big impediment to your life. It's not like, oh, gee, I can't go to church or synagogue. It's like, you know, it's, it's your whole culture mm. is cut off. And so then, then, then this is what I said earlier is do they like try to join them or do they, um, you know, do they resist? And, you know, Xi Jinping, the Chinese leader, talks a lot about the Chinese dream. And the Tibetans actually would like the Chinese dream, too, but they can't have it. Yeah. They can't, um, you know, they can't travel from place to place. Um, they. Um, you know, often they have no internet. There's these like whole periods where they'll cut off the internet or they'll cut off the phones. Um, the um, they'll um, you know it changes from place to place, but it's really like it's hard to move around if you're Tibetan. One of the things about a Tibetan, like a Uyghur, the Muslims, you can't get a passport, um, and so you know you can't leave the country and. There's there's a Tibetan businessman who's he's in the last chapter of my book and he's quite successful and you know he has like a couple of he has a condo in Chengdu and he has like a couple of houses and he has a really nice actually two really nice SUVs but he's like I have everything I want in life but my freedom he doesn't have a passport like he'd like to go to the beach in Thailand you know he'd like for his kids to you know study English abroad but they can't go anywhere and often often you can't even go to the next town there's a story in there about a guy who um is trying to bring his father to a doctor a better doctor in another township it's i don't know like 80 miles away and you know they need so many layers of permission to get from one place to another um, you know, from the police reports, public security, doctor's letters, you, you, there, there's checkpoints that are just for Tibetans. Yeah. So when I when I was traveling around there, my my early trip, I used to hire a Tibetan driver or take a bus. But then eventually I started hiring a Chinese driver so I could sit in the back because if it's a Chinese driver, they don't stop the car. This again, this changes from place to place and time to time. It's all very um, variable, but they can't. There's just like no way to live a normal life. So if you're a young Tibetan, you know, not particularly religious, maybe you don't really believe in reincarnation, but you know, you want to like, you know, just like imagine yourself like, you know, 22, 23, you want to like get an education, you want to get a spouse. You know, what do you do? Do you just like raise yak? You know, or do you get one of these like government jobs that come with all sorts of restrictions and really lousy pay? To you know, there's just like no way to just be normal. Yeah. And when I say it's in some ways worse than North Korea, of course it's not worse than North Korea. I mean, most people are not starving, um, but it's not. You know, it's not their country. You know, it's not their language. And you know, there's no path for them 
really to succeed unless they become, um, you know, a collaborator or something. And again, I'm not talking about people who are politically active, who, you know, want to free Tibet or this or that, just, just people who want a normal life. Yeah. I know we're getting short on time. Um, and I want to thank you for giving me so much time and, and talking in such detail about, about both of these books. And I, I want to close by, you know, asking you about, you said this, I think twice now that, you know, as a journalist, your primary job is to tell the truth. And we're talking about, uh, you know, two parts of the world where there, I think undoubtedly are oppressed people who are really struggling and the job of the journalist is not to provide hope, but in the spirit of the truth in general, and we've talked about a lot of truths today that I think are very difficult to accept uh, are still occurring in, in 2022. What are the other, you know, important truths that maybe we haven't discussed either about North Korea or about Tibet, maybe both, um, that you think aren't, aren't widely known about in the West that you think are really salient and matter <clears throat> that maybe aren't being discussed about, or it, it just isn't widely known in the culture in general. If anything comes to mind, I'd, I'd love to maybe close with that as a opportunity for you to speak about other truths that you know about that you think, you know, really matter about these places. I think um, press coverage you know, tends to look for, you know, really extreme situations, you know, people who are tortured, executed, you know, gruesome atrocities, some of the, um, you know, what's happening in Ukraine now. But in China, there's there's a level of oppression that's much more subtle, and it's sometimes hard to write about. Um, so uh, um, for the Tibetans and, you know, even more so the Uyghurs who, who really are being imprisoned in mass. And for many of the Han Chinese, there there is this, you know, corrosive loss of freedom, um, you know, partly because of um, some of the monitoring that's been put in place, especially since the COVID pandemic, um, the apps that you have to have on your smartphone that, you know, show who you've been in contact with or, you know, where you've moved to. and. You know, what, what I've seen in Tibet, this is not the case in Xinjiang with the Uyghurs, but in Tibet, is, you know, I think there may not be quite as much like blood and torture as there was, um, you know, decades past. But, but the level of oppression is greater. And, you know, that's very hard for journalists to write about. People will say to me, you know, oh, Tibet, you know, it's not so bad. Look, you can see people smiling and, you know, you know, who are, you know, eating nice meals and wearing nice clothes. But there's, there's this closing in of possibilities and discourse that is really happened a lot. Even since I wrote this book, it's gotten much, much worse 
throughout China. I mean, for example, um, um, people in China can't use, um, uh, now often can't use a VPN, virtual private network. That's what we used to do to you know, access websites for um, Tibetans and even more so for Uyghurs using a non-Chinese site like WhatsApp can get you put in prison for years, years and years. You know, trying to go contact somebody outside the country can get you put in prison for years and years and years. There's more than um, a million Uyghurs. We haven't talked about them much, but the, the Muslim people in the Northwest who've been detained. And, you know, I think that this just this corrosive lack of freedom and tightening of society is something that we have to pay more attention to, not just the things that involve, you know, a lot of blood and torture and the most extreme cases. Yeah. The subtle loss of individual freedom. Yep. Yeah. Well put. Yep. Yeah. I had Omar, I'll close on this, but I, I had Omar Kanat on the show, who's the the leader of the World Uyghur Conference Congress um, on about six months ago, and we talked about the Uyghurs in detail. Um, Barbara, thank you so much for all the work that you do, and um, I think the public is richer for it, and I really appreciate you given, I know what your schedule is probably like, uh, giving me so much time and and talking in such detail. It It was really great to meet you. Yeah, it was really nice to talk. Likewise. Thank you for listening to this episode of Keep Talking. If you're finding value in this podcast, please consider supporting the show via the links below on Venmo, PayPal, or Patreon. Your support helps to make these conversations possible. 